the world leader in Internet Talk Radio. Internet Talk Radio. You're listening to America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. On my show lately, I've been having some stories, people with stories about uh, how their lives have changed, uh, spiritual quests that they've been on, how they've uh, changed things for the better. And today, um, I have on two interesting guests. They are married to each other as well as being business partners. And uh, they have written a book that is about a subject that you, well, I have never heard of before, and I will just, you can, you can tell me, uh, the authors when, uh, uh, when you get on, as far as, I mean, I, whether you, whether there was anything that you had heard of like this is either. Uh, it's called Spiritual Capitalism, What the Fire Department of New York Taught Wall Street About Money. And my guests, Peter Ressler and Monica Mitchell Ressler, uh, have written this book after their lives have changed uh, spiritually, although they had been on a spiritual quest before 9-11. But 9-11 has, uh, was a kind of enlightenment for them. And uh, it changed their life, and part of the change has to do with uh, writing this book. And then we'll hear about the rest of how their lives changed. So welcome to the show, Peter and Monica. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Now, I should also say, as way of introduction, that um, Peter and Monica are uh, Wall Street tycoons, <laughs> for lack of a better word, <laughs> since I don't really understand anything that goes on <laughs> on Wall Street. Um, but essentially, they um, help people. Well, you can tell people what you actually do, but um, they were a very high-profile money makers, helping their clients um, by being headhunters and uh, attracting some of the most talented heads so that they could help their clients make a lot more money. <laughs> How's that for a, uh, <laughs> a layperson's description of what you do? It's like, you know, when you go to school and you have to explain to your child's first grade class what it is that you do. That That's kind of that level. But anyway, welcome to the show, and, and uh, I'm very excited to hear about your stories. So which one of you would like to go first? Well, I'll go first. Um, first of all, I've been called a lot of things in my life, but tycoon hasn't been one of them. I actually like it. I think it fits. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Um, let, me, let me just explain to you what we do. Um, we have a Wall Street executive search firm, and um, we work for very large investment banking firms, uh, hedge funds, global commercial banks, and they hire us to go out and find specific types of talent in the marketplace, um, and they ask us to go out to some of their competitors and recruit trading talent or sales talent or financial talent to try to get them to join our client firm. And that, that is pretty much what we do. So, you know, the simplest way to explain it is, 
we take people, we recruit people from one firm and try to get them to go work at our client firm. Okay. Okay? Yes. <laughs> and these are all Wall Street uh, bond executives. It's funny because um, Peter, after 9-11 happened, uh, one of the first things he said to me was he just um, lost his drive to work. Uh, first of all, there really wasn't any work immediately after the attack because our clients had been devastated and the city and financial district had been devastated. So we were basically just picking up the pieces for several months after that. Um, but the first thing he said about our work was, what do we do? I mean, we just make rich people richer. And that was the question, what do we do? Um, because we were looking at life and death uh, all around us and very uh, serious human issues and human suffering. And, and our work to us at that moment seemed uh, frivolous, seemed trivial, and we had to find a deeper meaning in it in order to be able to continue with it because it was basically when 9-11 hit and all the um, tragedy occurred in this, the next month, two-month period, it was as if a, a veil had been lifted from our face and we had seen, okay, you know, this is real life and uh, we've been in this sheltered, protected world in Wall Street uh, search where we make rich people richer and now we're looking at all these people who are dying, who lost loved ones, our city in ruins, Wall Streeters saying, you know, what's the point of all this? Why are we doing this? The firefighters were devastated and all, you know, the country was devastated and we had to um, look for a way to find our work, uh, something meaningful in the everyday work that we did. And that's really what came, where the book came out of. We saw, um, rather than making rich people richer, there was a phone call that came. It was a few months after 9-11, and it was a, a big hitter, trader from one of the Wall Street firms that we had placed seven years before. And actually, he, he said, you changed my life. If you hadn't um, called me that day and, you know, started the process of this deal and then we worked with him for about a year before he was he moved to his new firm, he said, my life wouldn't be anything like what it is. Where I live, who I'm married to, my children, my whole life has changed because of you and I want to thank you. Mm-hmm. And it was really a, a sign from... Um, a spirit, you know, to us a sign uh, from our higher power saying, okay, here's your answer. Mm-hmm. And that that was that was sort of the impetus for us to uh, not only write the book but to understand that we all perform a service to other people. And you know what happened to me, uh, as Monica said before. You know, I, I'm a very competitive guy. I'm a very driven guy. Um, we were and are very successful at, at our business. And on 9/11, I just it just knocked all of that out of me, okay? And I felt useless. I felt um, ineffective. And I felt like I needed to do something that really, really meant something. And the only thing that I could think of to do, because I have, we have a, lo- a large connection to the fire department. We have many, many, many friends. Father Michael Judge was a personal friend of mine for eight years. He was the first official casualty. He was the FDNY chaplain. And so at the age of 46 years old, the only thing that I could think of to do was to join the volunteer fire department in my neighborhood, um, partly because I felt like out of respect to Michael and, and, and out of respect to, 
you know, the 343 firefighters that died on that day and, and the, the rest of the firefighters that lived that were just, you know, so incredibly crushed by those losses, it was, in fa- you know, something I couldn't imagine. So what happened, you know, I started going to fire school at night and, you know, the instructor would say things to us like, never leave without your brother. Never turn your back on your brother. If your brother goes down, you go down trying to get him out. Um, the code of the firefighter is in, in unity. There is strength. And then I would go to work on Wall Street, and um, you know, a year or so after the, the attack, things started going back to normal, and, and people, you know, Wall Street for the first time had been faced with life and death. For the entire history of Wall Street prior to 9-11, Wall Street had never been faced with life and death issues. And what, what I saw happening was, you know, the, the traditional walls that separate us, right, economically, socially, um, you know, by religion, by uh, status of work, blue collar, white collar, those walls were absolutely down and they didn't exist on the 11th, on the 12th, and for a few months thereafter, I, I saw, you know, investment bankers pulling plumbers out of the rubble. And it, 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 the effect that had on me and on both of us was, wow, we are witnessing for the first time in our lives, and we're both born and raised in New York, um, the best of humanity. This tragedy has, has created, you know, some incredible human beings. They've been able to rise above, you know, their, their what I like to call petty differences. Um, nobody was cutting any, people weren't cutting you off on the street. People were polite. I mean, it was a surreal experience to see New York, um, you know, uh, in, this, in this state of mind. Everybody was in the same state of mind. And so I said, wow, we're all capable of this. Every single one of us is capable of being their best selves. Why does it have to take a tragedy to bring us there? And so, but the firefighters were already there. And their work was a service. You know, they would talk about going into a burning building and not asking who was in there, not asking what their religion was, how much money they had, what their belief system was. They would just go in with for the sole purpose of of saving life and property. And to us, that was extraordinary. Uh, and, you know, it was very clear that firefighters and cops and EMS workers had a, a very clear and understandable service that they provided to complete strangers. But when we started thinking about it and watching Enron and WorldCom and Tyco and, and the Wall Street analyst scandals, we started, and you know, uh, seeing all of the tremendous devastation that uh, people who, uh, you know, lost their life savings and their pension funds and just because of the greed of a few, you know, uh, greedy executives, we realized that we're all connected. You know, everything we do in business is a service. No matter what you do for a living, it is a service to someone else. If you have a job that pays you money, you know, you're being paid to provide a service or a product for another human being. You know, not to, um, just to go back to something that you said, um, it, 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 
maybe some of the stereotypes, you know, of course, come from the movies and and things like that. But when you imagine some of the um, people on Wall Street, at least some of the other tycoons, um, and who feel so uh, powerful because they make a lot of money, and you imagine them being hit by 9/11 and having to um, be concerned about their life. I mean, it was a very, as you say, an equalizing kind of experience. In other words, all of a sudden they realized that they were mortal and that they needed these firemen who they might have looked down on in some way before because they weren't making as much money, that their lives were in their hands. Mm-hmm. Well, when we come back, we will uh, continue talking with Monica Mitchell-Ressler and Peter Ressler. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're talking about spiritual capitalism, that's the name of their book, what the New York Fire Department taught Wall Street about money. So stay tuned. Informative. Educational. Insightful. You're listening to VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships... Check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Do you have questions concerning your personal portfolio? And would you like to know where the market's going before it gets there? Then you need to tune in to Elite Masters of Trading, hosted by the Traders Coach, Robin Dane, every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Robin has great ideas on how to invest, save, and make money. So become an elite trader in the market every Wednesday at 10 a.m. with the Traders Coach, Robin Dane, and Elite Masters of Trading, right here on the Voice America Radio Network. Information you need, when you need it. VoiceAmerica.com Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rack and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to Stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. This week on the Dragon Page with Michael and Evo, it is a very, very, very special show. You know, my wife hates people use the word very that many times. It's just very, very, very <laughs> cool. George R.R. R. Martin, you've been waiting for his latest novel for three years. It's finally out, A Feast for Crows, and we've got him on the show to talk about it. Then after that, Terrence West joins us to talk about his book, Fallen Angels. This week on the Dragon Page with Michael and Evo. That's the Dragon Page, every Saturday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on Voice America. Continuing to be the authority in Internet Talk Radio, you're listening to VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have questions or comments for Dr. Carol, call toll-free at 1-888-335-5204. Now let's get back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. 
And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're talking today about spiritual capitalism, what the New York Fire Department taught Wall Street about money, with my guests, Monica Mitchell-Ressler and Peter Ressler, and um, how their lives were changed by 9-11 to become even more spiritual as that brought about an awakening, including writing this book. And um, for Peter, joining the... Um, fire department or becoming a volunteer fireman uh, and we'll talk about what you did Monica too but I'd love to hear your comments about what I was saying right before the break about how uh, psychologically 9-11 uh, affected all of these business tycoons who thought that they controlled the world basically well um, it's funny that you should say that you know about we like to point out that Wall Street people really aren't different than anybody else. <laughs> Some of them. <laughs> Not really. You know, there's people all over that think that, um, that run their life by their ego, and there's people that are humble. And it's the same on Wall Street. And that's, that's um, uh, something that we like to express to people. Okay. There are a lot of really incredibly great people on Wall Street. You usually only hear about the ones that um, are scandalous or greedy. I mean, obviously, right. that's what makes news. Right. So um, to say that uh, the Wall Streeters were indifferent to the firefighters uh, before 9-11 I think would be accurate. Um, we heard on a radio show once um, the host asked us a very similar question and said, what did Wall Streeters think about the firefighters before 9-11? And um, Peter said, I don't think they did. <laughs> Right. They really didn't, and and that's probably true. But let's take a, a personal stance there and think about: Do you? Does anybody? Did anybody really think about the firefighters, except for firefighters or people that are family of firefighters before nine eleven? I mean, you just think, you know, if your house is burning down or if you have an emergency, you dial nine one one. But before that, do you think of them? Not generally. We don't think of it. We just assume that they're going to be there. It's sort of right. a and understood. And um, one of the things that happened to us after uh, the tragedy was to really think about what people did because the the city was pulled together here not just by firefighters but by police officers who we were uh, actually walking up to in the middle of the street and saying thank you for being here, by construction workers who honestly I'd never given a thought to before that at all, uh, sanitation workers, iron workers. If it hadn't been for these groups of people, the city wouldn't have been rebuilt. Mm-hmm. And after September 11th, they were as in- instrumental in the rebuilding of the city as the firefighters were and as generous with their time and as dedicated um, the iron workers actually cleaned up Ground Zero in a huge, um, you know, made a huge contribution down there. Worked right with the firefighters, as did all the other um, city agencies and first responders. So we started opening our own eyes. I never thought of myself as indifferent. I, I honestly never thought of myself as an indifferent Wall Streeter, not paying attention to other people. Uh, I always thought I was compassionate and caring and, um, you know, very progressive in my viewpoint about my connection with other people. I considered myself a spiritual person, but I never gave any of these people a thought, not a conscious thought on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And now I do, and that's that's one of the major changes, and that's also one of the uh, our major points in writing the book is to say, look, we're all connected. We all uh, work with each other. We're all dependent on each other, whether we're aware of it or not. 
It took a tragedy for us to realize that all the invisible bonds that we have to each other, but they're there every day, no matter who sees them. And I don't think it's just Wall Streeters that are indifferent. I think, you know, you go to a supermarket, you're not thinking about the person behind the counter. Mm-hmm. You're not thinking about all the pers- people that are responsible for the food being in that store and you are getting food on your own table. Uh, it's just an awareness that we now have about the web of connections that um, that bind us all together. Yes. Yes, I agree with that. Now, you, we were talking a little earlier about um, the, well, I, I don't know that you put it in these words, but the sort of the, the sign, the spiritual sign by um, this uh, former client of yours or, or this man who you had placed in a job as part of your headhunting services um, who called you seven years later at this particular time, a few just a little bit after 9-11, to thank you and made you realize how much you had changed his life, which presumably you did with lots of other people. Um, similarly, I was reading, uh, Peter, about your coming home one day soon after 9-11, um, somewhat disillusioned and wondering whether you were doing anything meaningful and meeting a neighbor. Do you want to tell us about that? Because that seems like uh, I'm sure you must have thought that that that, this, that fate or a higher power or whatever you want to call it put that neighbor in your path that day. Well, I'll tell you a funny story, okay? Um, I always wanted to join the fire department, and I would occasionally say to Monica, you know, um, what about me joining the fire department? And she'd say, yeah, you know, you could do that. You could run into burning buildings and, and climb up, you know, 40-foot ladders, and, but you won't be married to me. <laughs> I mean, but you could do it. And so, you know, the thought of being a divorced volunteer <laughs> firefighter, just, what, it just didn't have the same cachet, you know. Um, but on this particular day after the attack, I was standing online in the post office, and the guy in front of me was wearing a, a fire department T-shirt. So I tapped him on the shoulder and said, you know, are you a firefighter? He said, yeah, I am. And I said, um, what's the requirement uh, to join? Is there an age limit? Is, you know, do you have to be in some, you know, any kind of particular shape? He said, uh, are you breathing? <laughs> and I said, I think so. <laughs> he said, come on down. <laughs> so um, I, I went home and I said to, Mo- to Monica, you know, listen, I want to talk to you. Don't give me an answer right away. Think about it. You know, I want you to think about this, what I'm about to say. And she's like, what, what, what's the matter? What happened? And I was like, I want to join the fire department. She said, yeah, go do it. Uh. I understand. It's something you need to do, you should do. Why don't you go over there and sign up? So I jump in my BMW, and I pull into the into the parking lot, and I go in, and, and all these guys there think that I'm there to write them a check. And when I told them I wanted to sign up, they were like, why? And so I, I said, you know, Mike Judge was a friend of mine. Uh, you know, I think what you guys do is incredible. It's, it, you know, and I, I, I basically gave them a few reasons why I wanted to join. And they were, they didn't want me. Huh. And you know why they didn't want me? Because I was a businessman. I was looked at by these guys as the enemy. Hmm. Um. And, you know, it, it struck me that there was a tremendous amount of mistrust because I was a white-collar guy, and the majority of these guys were blue-collar guys. Mm-hmm. And I thought, why? Why is that? This is yeah. something I need to change. You know, this is something that, that is, again, you know, something that separates us. 
we saw that separation disappear on September 11th, and then it came back. And it took me like six months, you know, to really prove to them that the reason I was there was not for some self-interest, uh, but that I wanted to serve. And, you know, now, obviously, you know, well, it's not obvious, but these, these people are some of, some of my best friends. And what did you find out was the reason for why there was this much distrust? There's such a separation between um, working class and um, uh, professional uh, people. It's in the minds of the professionals. It's in the minds of the working class. There's there's, um, very often an animosity that we have encountered, not since we wrote the book, but uh, just observing people. Because one person said to uh, Peter, by the way, Peter became one of the um, most loved uh, volunteer firefighters in the department. They said he was a throwback to the old days. He had such passion for it. Mm -hmm. And one of the firefighters said to him, um, you know, obviously his uh, commitment and dedication um, brought them around, and he said, you know, I just couldn't understand why a millionaire businessman would want to put on bunker gear and go into a burning building. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, I understand the question. You know, I understand his dilemma because um, up until 9-11 when Peter kept mentioning the fire department to me going to become a, a volunteer, I always thought about it as um, somebody else's job. You know, I never really thought about the fact that all the firefighters in, in most of the towns across the country are volunteer. Actually, across the world, they're volunteer. Mm. And uh, I, I didn't even think about it um, until 9-11. And when he asked me, um, you know, I want to join the fire department, something had changed in me. I realized that, you know, through this event, I realized, well, it's everybody's job. We're all part of it. We all have to contribute. So now I have to just put aside my own fears, which was I don't want to lose my husband here, which was bigger fear after 9-11 than yeah. before, believe me. Yeah. And. Um, I said yes, because I knew that I had to make some sacrifices on my own. You know, um, I guess also part of it had to do with what you were saying earlier about how the code is to take care of your brother. And if they thought that you were just sort of living out some childhood fantasy, you know, after you got a fire truck when you were four, um, then they wouldn't really be able to trust that you would protect them like your brother. Right. Well, let I, I just want to say one thing. Peter is living out a childhood fantasy. <laughs> he does love I, I driving the truck. <laughs> he was? She's right. He loves the truck. He loves the freaking the bells, you know. Well, I mean, I figured that that had to be part of it. But, but uh, you're very smart, Doctor. Very smart. <laughs> I thought she was the only one that knew that. Yeah. No, but it was also, you know, just feeling... Um, the hearts of these um, incredible people, heroes, we call them. They don't call themselves that, though, um, that had given everything for a cause greater than themselves. We were very moved by that. Yes. And when we come back from the break, um, I would like uh, to, Monica, for you to tell us how, what additional job uh, you took on after 9-11 and how you were moved to do that. Okay. My guests today are Peter and Monica Ressler. Their book is Spiritual Capitalism. We're talking about the impact of 9-11 on these two lives, which I hope is making all of you think about uh, how your life may have or should have changed in good ways since 9-11. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Stay tuned.
Bringing the world together. You're listening to America's Voice. VoiceAmerica.com Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Are you feeling stuck in some part of your life? You might have some crust busting to do. Crust is anything that you think, feel, or believe that prevents you from living life full out. Step into the crust-free zone with me, Dr. Pat Vasily, and get ready to do some serious crust busting. Join us on Thursday mornings on VoiceAmerica.com at 8 a.m. Pacific Time for crust busting your way to an awesome life. Do you know that over 70% of Americans with severe disabilities are unemployed? Are you one of the 2.5 million Americans with epilepsy? If you are, or know someone struggling with these issues, tune in to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. On the show, Joyce will discuss these issues as well as others. She will have on nationally known guests that will offer helpful insight on disability matters and let you, the listener, call in with your questions and concerns. So if you struggle with a disability or know someone who does, listen to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. Heard every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time here on VoiceAmerica.com. Cutting edge. Challenging. Stimulating. You're listening to VoiceAmerica.com. When tax time comes, are you the person that goes to your accountant with a shoebox literally full of receipts? Stop wasting your accountant's time as well as your own by organizing your finances with the help of Joe Dunphy and Poor Richard Shoebox. Heard live every Monday at 7 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, Poor Richard Shoebox will let you know what you can do to organize for tax time as well as how to get the most out of your retirement. So get all of your receipts together and tune in to Poor Richard Shoebox with Joe Dunphy every Monday at 7 a.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on the Voice America Radio Network. Business, sports, religion, legal, pets, entertainment. You're listening to VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have questions or comments for Dr. Carol, call toll-free at 1-888-335-5204. Now let's get back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. With me today is Monica Mitchell Ressler and Peter Ressler, who um, are the owners of a Wall Street firm, RMG Search, which is a headhunting search firm, and uh, they are also the authors of Spiritual Capitalism as a result of changes in their life after 9-11. And as we were starting to talk about before the break, Monica, what is it? Um, what additional career did you take on after 9-11? <laughs> well... Uh, before the book, which is a whole other additional career in, a, right. in and of itself, right. um, and we still do a Wall Street search. I just want to um, make yeah. that clear that we still run our business. Um, 
the tragedy served um, for both of us as a spiritual awakening, um, an epiphany uh, in a sense, where we thought our personal lives were separate from our business lives. We thought our personal lives were separate from making money, that it was two separate, almost like two separate people. I think most people do that. You know, the old saying, it's nothing personal, it's business. We all separated in our minds, and the most... Um, uh, the biggest change for me personally after the attack was to realize that every single thing we did was personal. The way we make money is personal to me, to everybody else that I affect with it, not just to my family, but to the people that I work with, the people that um, you know I'm in contact with that are connected with you know my producing profits. Uh, it's it's how I make money and what I do with it. This is personal for me, and it's personal for everyone. And the first thing that I did in terms of um, after 9-11, in terms of giving back to the community, was um, something, I don't know what possessed me to do it. I guess it was all the death that surrounded us. I signed up to be um, a hospice volunteer uh, care worker. And um, it was, they, they didn't have very many people doing it. It's not a thing that a lot of people want to do. There are people, um, some wonderful group of people that were doing it that were dedicated to sitting with people who were dying from terminal illness. But it was hard. I, I was uh, assigned to um, two different hospitals. I was the person who would go to the hospitals at the end stage um, of their illness and mm-hmm. sit with them for the last week, two, three weeks, uh, or even a month of their life. And... Um, at that point in their life, if anybody's ever been through a, um, a terminal illness, people are very changed physically, and um, they're just, uh, you know, physically diminished, and they can't talk. Sometimes there's a lot of tubes, and I would sit and talk to them, and um, if they could speak to me back, they would say incredible things. Hmm. Um, now, that's another book, by the way. Yeah, it definitely is another book. You know what I found? Um, I used to, in the beginning, I used to think, why are these people alone? Why aren't there family members yeah. here? Be- because certain people would have rooms full of family members, and they wouldn't necessarily meet, need me. They would maybe ask me to stay while they went out for a bite to eat. But certain other people were alone, and they had family, and family wouldn't come. And in the beginning, I thought, this is horrible, which, of course, it was. They did feel abandoned. But I realized that for some people, it's very hard to face that kind of loss. And for me, being a person coming in from the outside, not being directly uh, related, not having issues or history with them, it was easier for me than the family members sometimes to sit with them and give them that um, companionship that they, mm-hmm. they needed. So I would I would say that was a powerful experience, and I did that for two years. Uh, we have moved since, and we have uh, moved from New York to New Jersey. Um, and uh, now we're traveling so much with the book that I feel like this is the thing that we do, um, mm-hmm. you know, giving back to talk about how to make capitalism and your pursuit of profit or anything you do for a living, how to understand it's personal and how to connect it to other people and, and to understand that we are all in this together. Yes, and we'll we'll talk about some of the um, spiritual seven spiritual lessons. But I just wanted to, you know, when you were talking about uh, some people with who were there with a lot of family and some people who were totally alone, you, you know, aside, yes, I agree with you that it is harder for some people to come in and see their mother or father or grandparent dying. But on the other hand, also, um, it really is a profound lesson uh, as to how we should live our lives because. Yeah. 
I think that there is a difference in the people who wind up with no one in the room, a difference besides the fact that it might be hard for some people to see that. Right. And because I remember when I, for a while I was a psychiatrist at the, um, uh, the hospital for people from the entertainment industry, the motion picture and television um, hospital. And you would see some people, a lot of people were behind the scenes, but there were some people who had actually been uh, in front of the cameras. And you see them growing old and, and getting terminal and um, not having anyone visiting them. And you, you know, even though they had been so famous and you wonder um, what they did in their life to, well, which for a lot of people it was just being totally self-centered and, and really not winding up with people who loved them so much that they wanted to sit there every day to talk to them. And I, I think that there's a very profound lesson in all of that that goes along um, in some ways with the spiritual lessons for business. Well, I think um, in any tragedy, Hurricane Katrina, um, 9-11, whether you have a, a loved one in your life that's um, ill or passes away, these are all um, uh, this, you know, 9-11s in our lives. Mm-hmm. And one thing that this event taught me, and the same thing I learned actually 20 years ago when both my parents died within three months of each other. I had the same reaction, and it was, you know, today could be your last day. You never know when your life is going to change. You never know when maybe it's not your last day or the last day of life as you know it. That's what happened to us on 9-11. It was the last day of life as we knew it. And that um, deepened my um, connection to other people. It deepened my um feeling of uh, compassion for other people. That's why I went in and sat with people who were dying because I knew that at any given moment I wasn't going to wait. I always wanted to do it, really. I wasn't going to wait five years, ten years till you know, I could find the time. I was just going to make the time at that moment. And the thing that I noticed, which was exactly what you just said, was that the people that were dying were dying as they lived. If they had lived in love and had been open-hearted and compassionate and loving to to their family, to their friends, they would be surrounded by them. Mm -hmm. And if they hadn't, you know, if they didn't live that way, if they had lived closed lives and self-absorbed and uh, I can't judge it, I don't know how they lived, but if they lived closed off from other people and unloving, then they were alone. Mm -hmm. Yes, which is something that, these tragedies like 9-11 or Katrina should be making us uh, think about more in terms of changing our lives um, to realize that now, that um, not that we know, you know how we're going to die, but um, just that we would want, when we die, we would want to be the kind of person where there would be lots of loving people surrounding us if they could be. And the question is always, you know, this is the question I ask myself now every day, but I don't have to anymore because I, I live this now. But the question that became for us then was, if today were our last day, because on 9-11, you know, that really hit home with us. If today were our last day, could we say we've lived the life we wanted to live? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and part of that is just, uh, you know, a, a, a bit of a shift in the way we think. I know that before 9-11, I think uh, the majority of us felt like, yeah, we know we're going to die, but not for a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's way, way, way down the road. Um, and so, you know, that's a sort of, uh, that's a, a kind of denial that I know for myself uh, I have moved out of since September 11th. But when you think of it in those terms and you think of the, of the fact that, you know, 
your words and your interactions with others have a profound effect on on other people. Um, and you know the, the the connection that we saw on that day, um, it just made me think that you know I should really um, I should really start to create my legacy now, mm-hmm. and I should start to to you know treat people so that when they come to my my last few days, you know, they come and they say, this, this guy was a great guy, you know, he was generous, he was kind, he was compassionate. It's time to start now, you know, and there was an awareness that came out of that. Well, for me, it's not about what other people are going to say about me when I die. It's what am I going to say? Like in those last moments of my life, if I'm lucky enough to have them and I, you know, I meet my higher power and I face myself, will I say, you know, that I feel like I have put all I can uh, into this life? And that's that's how I live now. That's that's the barometer I have. So it's heightened awareness of that. It's I don't focus on death at all, especially after we live through all that death. It's not death that I'm focused on. It's actually quite the opposite. It's life. Hmm. hmm. Yes. Well, you know, um, well, one one thing, <laughs> you know, your stories are so interesting. We haven't been getting to these seven spiritual <laughs> lessons. But, um, well, we'll come on tomorrow if you like. <laughs> <laughs> when when you go around uh, talking about your book, um, is one of the frustrations that you find people are in denial? You mentioned denial, in denial about. Uh, about 9/11, about terrorism, about the fact that our lives can change uh, so quickly, and and that we could be, uh, you know, denial about facing their mortality. Well, it's funny because um, when we were um, sending the book around to different publishers, uh, we had different reactions. You know, um, uh, some people just loved that whole idea. The people that were sort of out of the realm of New York, like outside New York, could understand 9-11 better, I guess, because it wasn't as, if they weren't directly in the line of fire, because there were a lot of people that were connected, you know, had people on the planes, knew people in New York personally, but people that weren't directly affected by it could could understand it easier than people that were, because mm-hmm. it's so personal, it was so difficult to talk about. In fact, it took us two years to even start writing it, it was mm-hmm. so difficult for us, but um I feel like uh, there was a, a wall that went up. In fact, one um, one our literary agent said, "Well, you know, uh, he loved the whole concept of 9/11 and and the, and us using it as a metaphor for what you can learn spiritually from these events." But he said, "You know, I talked to um, this big, particular big publishing house who may very well have been run by people that were personally affected and deeply affected by 9/11, and they said to us, and this was." Um, I think two years after 9-11 when we first came up with the concept of the book, um, that's old news. 9-11's mm. old news. And that's what I found so interesting because 9-11 is never going to be old news. Mm-hmm. And as a matter of fact, the further we go along, the more newer it will be. I mean, if you think about the Holocaust, that happened 50 and 55 years ago and 60 years ago, and we're still talking mm-hmm. about it because we're still trying to come to terms with um, human suffering and what it means in our life and what people do to each other and and how we can um, overcome that and move to a higher level of existence. Yes, yes, absolutely. You know, but that is an interesting, because the, the publishing is primarily in New York, and that's a good point about how some of these people, some of the publishers, their staff, 
um, right. maybe particularly in denial because of of having lost someone um, close to them that well, uh, where well, they don't want to deal with it anymore. Right. I mean, human tragedy is never old news, ever. Well, maybe <laughs> if there were more planes flying into <laughs> which obviously <laughs> we, we hope won't happen, but um, yes, absolutely. Well, when we come back, we will talk more <laughs> about what we're talking about, spiritual capitalism. Perhaps you can... Uh, put the seven spiritual lessons of business into the order in which you think it's most important, not necessarily in the order in which you have it, so that we can uh, get to at least the most important ones in the last amount of time that we have, unless you can talk about all of them. <laughs> My guests today are Monica Mitchell-Ressler and Peter Ressler, and uh, we're talking about spiritual capitalism and how 9-11 could have and should have affected all of us. My guests. Uh, we'll be back along with me. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, and you're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. Bringing the world together. You're listening to America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Go beyond success and discover a deeper meaning to life. Join host Jeffrey Gitterman and his guests, the premier thought leaders in business, politics, science, spirituality, and culture who have reached the pinnacle of financial and professional attainment in their fields, only to discover a profound lack of fulfillment with what our culture defines as success. So won't you tune in every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time to Jeffrey Getterman and Beyond Success, redefining the meaning of prosperity, right here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. You want the truth? Face the facts. This is voiceamerica.com. Depend on it. Hello, this is Rory Garay, President of Greyhound Pets of America and host of Greyhounds Made Great Pets on Voice America. Join me every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific and 2 p.m. Eastern for an insightful and enjoyable talk about one of man's best friends, the Greyhound. Learn about the history of the Greyhound, discuss proper obedience and training techniques, and find out more about the Greyhound racing industry and what they are doing to help the adoption effort of the former race dog. If you own a Greyhound or just love dogs like I do, join me for Greyhounds Make Great Pets every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific, right here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. The world leader in Internet talk radio. radio. You're listening to America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have questions or comments for Dr. Carol, call toll-free at 1-888-335-5204. Now let's get back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And I want to get right back into this because uh, the time has been really going quickly as 
We've been listening to the very um, inspirational stories of Monica Mitchell Ressler and Peter Ressler, the authors of Spiritual Capitalism, and um, talking about how 9-11 has affected them to write this book, um, hoping to uh, teach other people in business how this isn't just about making money, it's about helping everybody in the world. So why don't you um, tell us about some, at least some of the seven spiritual lessons of business that you would like people to adopt? Well, I think one of them that, that really uh, is, is a crucial lesson is Lesson 5, and, and that says you have a sacred obligation to serve others through the divine nature of work. And you know, the best way to, to characterize that, uh, that lesson is, is to give you an example of something that happened to us after uh, the tragedy. Uh, we had a very, very close friend of ours who at the time was 72 or 73 years old. And a couple weeks later, she thought she was having a heart attack or a stroke. And we went to pick her up and took her to the hospital and brought her into, uh, into the room. And the nurse started to talk to her and calm her down and took her blood pressure and ran a couple of tests. And, you know, we could visibly see our friend, you know, starting to calm down. Turned out she didn't have a stroke. She didn't have a heart attack. Um, the stress was just too much for her and the nurse. And, but the, the thing that was so compelling both of us was watching this nurse work and we were thinking wow what a blessing what a gift from god this person is you know she's what would we do without her Mm -hmm. right um what if she didn't have to work where would Mm -hmm. she be would she be sipping margaritas on an island somewhere or you know playing tennis um and that led to you know the further question of you know, where would any of us be if we mm. didn't have to work? And we started to realize that work is something that has been created uh, divinely mm. uh, by a power that understood somehow that if we didn't have to work, our society would not function. Um, not to be repetitive, but every single job, no matter what it is, is a service to someone else. I had a friend who sweeps the street in front of Madison Square Garden, and he said to me, I hate my job. And I said, why do you hate it? And he said, because people throw cigarette butts, they throw garbage in front of me and say, you you missed that spot, you missed that spot. Hmm. And I said to him, I said, what you don't realize is that you are performing a sacred service by cleaning the city for us, by making the city beautiful, by making one of the, one of the biggest landmarks in the city attractive. That's a tremendous service. And, you know, he looked at me and he said, I have never thought of my job mm. as a service to anyone before. And he thanked me and he said, you know, I really feel differently about what I do. And if you stop and think about it, the whole, the sole purpose of work, whether you're an employer or an employee, provide a product or a service that is supposed to enhance our lives, right? It's supposed to keep us, you know, going. We saw that with the iron workers that saved our city and the construction workers. So I think that's a really, really interesting lesson, and I think it's a, it's a great way, if you read the lesson, to, you know, to raise your awareness. Every single job has spiritual value. How could you say that the firefighters... You know, investment bankers that made six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars a year next to the firefighters 
where it was a more important job than guys that were making $60,000 a year. Yeah, and, you know, we have done um, talks where we say how many people, um, you know, there'll be 100 people or 200 people or however, however many in a room, and we'll say how many people here. Uh, we do talk to businesses, but we also talk to civic groups and um, different uh, spiritual groups, too. How many people in this room are uh, in the bus- in business? And you might get, you know, maybe two, three people, uh, if it's not at a corporation, raising mm-hmm. their hand. And then the next question we ask is, well, how many people here work for a living? And then, of course, the room, everybody in the room raises their hand. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's interesting to us that most people don't understand that if they work anywhere, they're part of a business. Mm. I mean, if you make money and you're producing a product or a service or working in a, um, a factory or an institution or an organization that creates money and pays you money, that's a business. So we're all part of the business world. Um, this isn't just for investment bankers or people that are in, um, you know, management. This is for everybody that works. This is what spiritual capitalism is. We're all part of a society that creates profit. And the thing um, that we forget as, as a culture, I think, and um, we were no exception to this before the tragedy, was that business was this inorganic entity, something that was removed from ourselves. But when you think about what business is, it's people. It's people who create products or services with their own human energy and resources for other people. So when we say it's nothing personal, it's business, that would be like saying, you know, um, people are not personal, but they are. Well, you know, it's interesting when you, and I guess when you turn around, um, you know, when you, the more people can be made to appreciate what they do, even if it is a street cleaner, is something that is a valuable service. I mean, certainly if they didn't clean the streets, especially in New York, having come from New York, um, <laughs> right. uh, then, you know, it would last two days. Right. Um, but, um, but, you know, by making people feel better about themselves by realizing how important whatever it is that they do for work is, um, it takes away the measurement of... Um, how valuable their their service or their product is in terms of money and changes the idea of profit from being money to being how much self-esteem you get, how much self-respect you get, how much um, you feel good about what it is that you're providing. Absolutely, and we're all, when you talk about a nurse, um, uh, and they could be uh, tending, say, to an investment banker, that nurse's um, job it, that that investment banker is dependent on that nurse's job and depending on her uh, doing her job to the best of her ability and devoting herself to that. And it really has no impact whatsoever on the actual job that she's doing and his getting better, how much she's getting paid, and how much her pay uh, structure is different than his. That's why Peter mentions the um, firefighters who very often get paid uh, in a year what an investment banker makes in a week. Mm-hmm. There is no difference in terms of the inherent, we call it spiritual value, but it's the, the, the inherent value of every job. It's when you see a janitor, say, in a company um, cleaning the offices, and then you have um, the CEO, they're both nurturing that company. They're mm-hmm. both working for the benefit of that company. And to to examine them in terms of the um, pay scale, what you get paid is really all about you. It's all about what you, how you live, what kind of house you're in, what kind of school you can afford for your kids, and how you want to spend that. It doesn't have anything to do with the spiritual essence of who you are and what you do. 
every single one of us, no matter what job we, we do, can perform it as a service and can use it to um, benefit other people if we look at it for the spiritual value that it, it has. Well, then, don't you, um, and we're almost going to be out of time, but don't you uh, find it frustrating that, um, I mean, what do you say about people who, for example, um, star athletes, granted, you know, they, they certainly are performing a service and all of that, but when, when there's such a disparity, let's say in a star athlete, athlete compared to a teacher um, or, or that nurse, what do you feel about that? Well, I mean, when you're getting paid from um, a profit venture, you know, being a football team or a baseball team, as opposed to, you know, city taxes, uh, you know, state taxes, I mean, that's a question you'd have to ask taxpayers. Are you willing to pay teachers more? You know, it's really a personal question on that level. And, um, of course, there's no value in terms of what they're being paid, like you said, a star athlete to a teacher. A teacher shapes your children's lives. So I don't think the pay scale determines the value of what they do, and I, and I do think that's something that we could adjust in our society. Yes, yes, I certainly agree. Well, let's. Um, could you give out the website and tell people how they can get your book? The website is spiritualcapitalism.com, and you can buy the book. Uh, you can go to the website, purchase the book right from the website. Uh, we do have the book in stores. It's also on, on Amazon. And Amazon.com. Uh, Borders books, and uh, you know, yeah, and it's worth getting the message out. Um, we're spending our, our own uh, resources to get the message out because we feel it's very important. And um, so, there couldn't be enough messengers. Um, if you're moved by it, go ahead and talk about it, and go ahead and buy the book, and give it to somebody you think needs it, and read it yourself. And we uh, are glad to be here, Carol. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Well, you're very welcome. And I want to wish you the the best of luck with all you're doing. I think this is very, very important. And I I don't think that the days of um, Enron are necessarily over. Uh, Some of the people, uh, you know, are persisting. And so this this book is is, um, uh, continuously important. (laughs) It's not old news. No. Again, I'd like to thank, thank Monica Mitchell Ressler and Peter Ressler. The book, again, is Spiritual Capitalism, What the New York Fire Department Taught Wall Street About Money. Uh, they told you about one of the seven lessons. I suggest that you get the book and read about the others and also about some of the other uh, examples in their book and, and what these people taught them. Um, again, the website that you can go to to find out more about this is Spiritual Capitalism. Com. And um, their firm, their headhunting firm um, in New York is RMG Search. So thank you for uh, joining me on Dr. Carol's Couch. And I'd like to thank my listeners for joining us as well. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch on voiceamerica.com. And I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.